suicide. I know there's been a challenging couple of days for uh, a, a number of people nearby. Um, it was kind of like Niagara Falls in here on Thursday night, wasn't it, Pete? And so I know Pete and, and Tim have done a lot of work to sort of get this to a point where we can even be in here this morning. And, uh, and we're not alone. I know that there were garages and backyards and sheds and, and, uh, and offices and shops and lounge rooms. That was a lot of water in a very short period of time, wasn't it, on Thursday night? So that's a challenge. It is well with my soul. I, I caught part of an interview on, uh, I think it was yesterday morning, um, with a fellow, a Turkish fellow in Sydney, who was saying there's 20 members of my family who we know that they're gone. 20. Imagine if you had family living overseas and you know, there's 20 of them. Who knows how many family members, relatives, friends, acquaintances beyond the 20? Imagine in that situation being able to say it's well with my soul. It's not well, is it? Something's wrong. It's well with my soul. I was going to pray into those situations. Father God, we know that you see tragedy. We know that you see grief. We know that you see things that are not in accordance with your order of things. We also know that you do. You are not a God who stands separately, who stands aloof, who stands somehow immune to that grief. Rather, that you are well acquainted with tragedy, with loss, with heartache. Our faith is in one who personally identifies with great, deep, tragic loss. We also know, Lord, that you are a redeemer and redemption only matters in places of loss. Redemption only matters in places where things are not as they should be. And Lord, we know that we look forward to, to one great day of renewal and of, and of restoration. But even now, Lord, would your loving redemptive nature be felt within think of Turkey, think of Syria within, within that place of desperate and horrific tragedy and loss would you mobilise your people as agents of redemption in that place now we stand with our brothers and sisters in Turkey in Syria, those who have, have flown in, who have been mobilised, who would demonstrate your character and your heart in the midst of loss. That we would see that in those dark places there is something of beauty, something of ultimate reality, something of redemption, as you call communities together, to love one another. Might love be expressed, might solidarity be experienced, might community emerge and might the loss be dignified through mourning. It's the only right response. 
And Lord, we look forward with broken hearts to the day where you do redeem all things. And we do our very, very best today to empathise, to stand alongside those for whom everything says you have lost it all. Bless them, Lord God. Bless them. Place it on our hearts. Remind us to pray. Remind us to intercede. Do not let us be numb to the loss. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment, I want you to imagine a society, imagine a culture, imagine a way of life together where everybody that you encounter is looking out for your interests. Imagine a society where everybody else is mindful of your well-being, is mindful of your safety, even mindful of and working for your happiness. Imagine a way of being together where you don't need to worry about your own life. You're not concerned about your financial security. You're not concerned about whether or not you are, you are socially acceptable. A whole society in which you are loved. And to be anything else cannot even cross your mind. Imagine that this way of life was consistent in government. It was consistent in commerce and in sport and in fact in, in every facet of life. A life so secure in myself that my, my attention can be fully upon loving others, totally confident that I'm loved, that I'm held. I don't need to worry about myself because I'm totally loved. I'm held by my community. And so I can participate in that community as one of the lovers. There'd be no outsiders in such a society. No one left behind. What if this were the order of things here on earth? We're starting a brand new series today. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at, at Matthew uh, chapters 3 right through to chapter 7. No, is that right? 5 to 7. 5 to 7. And we're going to take all year to do it. We're going to step through this slowly. We want it to get from here to here. This sermon was perhaps Jesus' most powerful, his most comprehensive, his most disruptive picture of the kingdom order of things here on earth. The Sermon on the Mount is a critique of earthly culture. It is critique of this culture against the ultimate reality of the kingdom. And it's the promise of that kingdom culture invading earth the kingdom of god on earth as it is in heaven what jesus does in the sermon on the mount is reveal that that a seed has been planted a mustard seed a seed that's going to grow and is going to overtake the garden like yeast in the dough that works its way all the way through and leavens the bread like a hidden treasure what Jesus reveals in the Sermon on the Mount 
is the assured trajectory. It is the guaranteed destiny of all of creation. Heaven and earth united, God's reign fully come. Let it be, Lord. We're going to explore over this whole year the society that is coming, the ultimate reality in heaven that is being revealed and it is being expressed and it is expanding here on earth, guaranteed. We can be sure that Jesus gets what he wants. The fullness of his reign here on earth as it is in heaven. The planet and in fact of all of creation, the cosmos, has been infected with the virus of the kingdom order. It's an order of light, of life and love. And we have been told that darkness will not prevail against it. Death will not prevail against it. Division will not prevail against it. These things have no future. The kingdom of God in heaven is the ultimate reality of the cosmos and slowly but surely it is transforming earth and we are involved in its transformation. Jesus opens his sermon with, with eight statements, eight beatitudes, nine depending on how you would read it. And so as we dive into these opening statements, and we're going to take a couple of months to do that, to work through the eight or nine Beatitudes, we're going to recognise that the Beatitudes are gospel and not law. The Beatitudes are good news, not more burdens to carry, not an unachievable standard to live up to. This is not a social program for us to put into practice through our own effort, through our own striving. It is not a new set of commandments to follow in order to earn salvation or blessing. These are promises, promises of what we are becoming that we get to participate in now as an overflow of that reality. They are the promises to God's people and they are fully achieved by Christ and offered as a gift. As the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, they set the tone for this cosmic order. And it's an order that is not set by the most religious. It is not set by the most powerful. Rather, it is a, an order that celebrates and includes the least. The Beatitudes are an act of cultural resistance. They are a scandalous protest against prevailing culture, even today, and maybe even more so today. You might remember Steve Stewart from Impact Nations. He visited and spoke to us before Christmas. He writes this, he says, the Beatitudes are not requirements for blessing. Instead, they are an invitation based on reality from Christ's eternal perspective. Isn't that great? An invitation. So Matthew 5, 1 to 3. This is our starting point. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain 
And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so this, this is still very, very early in Jesus' ministry. So it, it's only you know, uh, a matter of weeks, um, certainly not more than months ago, that Jesus was baptised by John the Baptist. It's really important that we understand who he was baptised by because John was, was preaching and he was baptising in the wilderness. Not in the city, not in the temple, not in the synagogues. And he preached salvation through repentance, not salvation through sacrifice, not salvation through religion. And it was into this non-traditional, non-religious context that Jesus was baptised. And he was tempted in the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights. We can hear the echoes of the Old Testament. And then he began preaching and his message Sounded like a broken record. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Turn around. God's ultimate reign and order, it's close. He calls the first disciples. He calls Simon, who would be called, become Peter, his brother Andrew and James and his brother John. And Jesus and his disciples would be ministering to the crowds. We read in chapter 4, verse 23, that he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And great multitudes were following him. And then seeing the the crowds, he went up on the mountain. He went up to the place of encounter as we as we look at this metaphor of, of mountains throughout all of scripture it is the place of encounter with the almighty and the echoes of moses the echoes of the 10 commandments these are deliberate deliberate echoes but rather than a single prophet ascending the mountain and encountering God and then bringing down the law and delivering it to the people, now we have God himself in the person of Jesus with the people on the mountain. And he is supplanting the law with the seeds of love. He sat down. He took the position of a teacher. That's what teachers did. He sat down and he began to teach. And he begins with the Beatitudes, a series of blessings. And these blessings prepare the hearts and the minds of the crowd for everything that follows in this sermon. And setting the tone, this first Beatitude is a sharp and it is a cutting critique against the systems and the powers and the authorities and the culture of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No wonder the crowds were following him. Blessed, blessed. The word is makarios, and it simply means happy. Happy are those. In fact, it's extremely happy. Extremely happy 
are those. This is the kind of happiness that comes from sharing intimacy with God, union with God. Makarios, blessed, extremely happy to be in right relationship, proximate relationship with God. Happy, blessed, are. Present tense, not will be. Happy are the poor. The word is tokos. Probably saying it wrong, tokos. It literally means bent over, crouching, begging. These are the materially poor, destitute of wealth. Zero influence, no social position, no honour. This is the beggar on the street. In this agrarian culture, there were, there were nine social classes and, and the Tokos, the Tokoi, are ninth. This is the bottom of the bottom. These are the least of these. And we need to be really careful that we don't unnecessarily spiritualise this and lose its meaning. It is referring to the materially poor. It is referring to the least of these, the bottom of the bottom. This is a theme that, that is consistent throughout all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. God is most definitely on the side of the poor, on the side of the least of these. Their theological word for the term for this is God's preferential option for the poor. You cannot read scripture without getting the idea that, that God's heart is uniquely and especially with the poor. Luke's version of this beatitude in, in Luke 6, verse 20, Luke simply says this Blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. And even in the, the NLT, NLT's uh, translation of Matthew's first beatitude, God blesses those who are poor and realise their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor. This is the good news for the poor that Jesus was commissioned to bring. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The materially poor are recipients of, participants in. They are heirs of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Nowhere else in scripture do we find this term, poor in spirit. More accurately, it is the poor in the spirit. It's a definite article. Blessed are the poor in the spirit. In, in Hebrew, Old Testament, poor means, uh, refers to two groups. And so it means both the materially poor, it also means God's faithful. And it's true here too. There are two groups. The first group is the materially poor, the socially destitute. But then by adding in the spirit, Matthew is being explicit about including this second group. God's faithful. Those that realise their total dependence, their poverty of being, not just their material poverty. 
Those whose spirit, whose will or heart is bent low intentionally. Someone intentionally and deliberately humble before God, not proud. A spirit, will or heart that resembles the humble, resembles the self-emptying character of Christ. And you know the word for this. What is it? Self-emptying. Starts with K. Someone said it. Kenosis. Can I encourage you to jam this word into your brain? Kenosis. Self-emptying. Sacrificial love. This is the essential character trait of God. God is essentially kenotic. Kenosis. Blessed are those whose spirit, whose will, whose heart resembles the kenotic character of God. This is fundamentally important to this Christian life. Being poor in spirit is not thinking poorly of yourself. It's actually recognising that you are fully embraced. It's you recognising that there is no need to fight. There is no need to struggle for your worth. No need to struggle for your acceptance. You are the beloved of God. And this is what allows us to not hold on to ourselves so tightly. Your worth is in the one who made you, who called you, who loves you. Your worth is defined by him and not by me or by you, which means that we can self-sacrificially love and honour others, knowing full well that our safety and our inclusion is utterly secure in him. You can call that faith, if you like. This kenosis, this poverty of spirit, will or heart, is both the goal and the means of life in the kingdom, of discipleship. Which is why Jesus starts here. The intentional donation, the intentional sacrifice in oneself in relation to God and others, which of course is love. And so here is the paradox. On one hand, this beatitude, it is an invitation to a higher plane. It is an invitation to a divine way of being. And yet it necessitates a journey of descent. And Jesus, of course, is the model of this, whom we are to follow. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the materially poor, those destitute of wealth and influence and position and honour. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who resemble Christ in their attitude and in their actions. And so it's not the religious or the powerful or the privileged that Jesus calls blessed. They may appear blessed, but it's ultimately an illusion. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's is. I don't have a slide for that. Theirs is. It's present tense. Theirs is. Those living in full realisation of their dependence on God, rather living out of their own self-sufficiency, those living and, and loving canonically are already participating in the divine order of things. Theirs is 
the kingdom. There are only two beatitudes that are phrased in the present tense, the first one and the last one. All of the others are future promises. They shall, they will. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the heavens. And you might have noticed that that Luke says, theirs is the kingdom of God. Matthew being a Jew and and writing to a Jewish audience, he's being very, very careful not to use the name of God. And so he refers to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of of the heavens. Uh, It is simply the domain of God's rule. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of of heaven are the same thing, the same idea, just addressed to different, different audiences. And the kingdom of heaven, this is important, the kingdom of heaven is not heaven. The kingdom of heaven includes heaven. The kingdom is wherever God's reign is recognised. And it is recognised perfectly in the domain, in the territory of heaven. And the whole point of the gospel and of this sermon is that his kingdom would come. That his reign would be absolute on earth as it is in heaven blessed are the poor in spirit theirs is citizenship in this eternal perfect everlasting kingdom the life and the benefits and the culture and the order of god's kingdom is theirs this beatitude it sets the stage now for the rest of the sermon this is the foundational mindset start here before you can before you carry on. It's only through this beatitude that we make sense of the rest of the beatitudes, that we make sense of the rest of Jesus' sermon. To be poor in spirit is the starting point, the starting point for the rest of the beatitudes. It is the necessary posture for life in the kingdom. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all the other characteristics are in a sense the result of this one. This beatitude requires that we first recognise that God loves the poor and loves them especially, it seems. They will see justice. They will see restoration. It is fundamental to the kingdom, to kingdom life, that the poor, that the orphan, that the widow, that the outsider, the outcast, that they are restored into full participatory citizenship in the kingdom. And we had better get with that program. And secondly, it requires that we recognise that the blessed life, that life in Christ is a life of kenosis, of resembling his own character the one who made himself nothing and we are to have the same mindset paul writes this in in philippians 2 and you'll remember it in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as christ jesus who being in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant he became poor poor in spirit 
This is the starting point, this is the end point, and this is every point in between. It is from this mindset that we are read the rest of Jesus' charter for a new society, for his kingdom come. And this mindset, of course, it flows directly from the inner life of the triune God. The ultimate social order that exists between Father, Son and Spirit for all eternity is one of mutual kenosis. It is precisely that union, it is that social order that is invading every nook and cranny of the cosmos. band might like to come up yeah there there is no communion without self-emptying there is no union without kenosis marriage proves this true this is the heartbeat of the christian faith The symbols that we're going to take now, these are symbols of self-emptying and they are symbols of union. There is no place for independence. There is no place for self-sufficiency and ego when it comes to communion. By taking the flesh, by taking the blood, we are taking into ourselves solidarity with the one who self-empties. Making him part of us too. And so as you take the cracker and as you take the juice this morning, receive them as symbols of union with the one who became poor. It's in you now. Recognise that that the life to come, life in the kingdom, life that is springing forth around us is established in self-sacrifice. There is no other way. And because you are perfectly, because you are eternally loved and held and included, you are free to risk it. Free just like Christ free to take on the nature of a servant. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, only theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. So would you like to do that now? You can come forward and you can take a cracker and a juice. Be mindful of the one that you are united with, the one who self-empties, and you can take that as you like.